Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 16, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Jordan Webb, the head of sports science at the University of Notre Dame. In this episode, Jordan's gonna share his insights into his experiences of working in professional sport, in the NBA with the Oklahoma City Thunder, the NFL with the Cleveland Browns, and MLS with the Chicago Fire. Jordan also dives into the transition into college sport, as well as athlete monitoring and making sense of all the data. Jordan talks integration of technology into different programs and really highlights the fundamental role of communication and truly moving the needle with athletes' progress and success. Jordan also shares some of the lessons he's learned throughout his career and much, much more. Great stuff here from Jordan. If you're interested in the Human Performance Summit, the 24-hour athlete that we've discussed in this podcast, hosted by Jordan and the University of Notre Dame, it looks to be a phenomenal event at the end of June 2018. So please check out the links. I'll be there. I hope to see you there too. If you're interested more on athletic performance at the elite collegiate level, then definitely go back and check out season one, episode number 44 with Purdue strength coach Josh Bonatal. And for more of a discussion on the use of technology in sports, season one, episode number 43 with Dr. Andy Galpin. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is highly bioavailable and has been shown in the research to enhance stamina by stabilizing blood glucose levels during exercise, as well as strengthening immunity by buffering exercise-induced reductions in key immune markers. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, season two, episode number 16 with Jordan Webb. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Jordan Webb, head of sports science and strength and conditioning at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Jordan, appreciate you taking the time today, bud. Hey, no problems. No problems at all. I'm excited to be on. Been a long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, listen, before we dive into talking monitoring, analytics, technology integration, etc., can you give folks a little bit more background and history on how you got into your position there at Notre Dame? Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question. Um, so, I've worked in the MLS, NFL a little bit, NBA, um, almost exclusively in, in professional and like private sector. Um, I was formerly with the Chicago Fire for about one season, and uh, didn't quite get my contract renewed. As you can imagine, professional sports can be a little cutthroat. Um, and I started applying for jobs and I got really lucky that they were hiring a new head of, um, performance science, uh, sports science here. I'm actually not the head of strength and conditioning, by the way, just to clear that up. Um, so my role originally came in, I was hired under Duncan French, who just left to be the VP of performance for the UFC. Um, so now I've, I've kind of 
reshuffled a bit and now I'm, I'm an associate strength and conditioning coach. And then I, I kind of handle all of our analytics and sports science initiatives here at the university. Awesome. So, great gig. It's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and in terms of, uh, if we jump right into things like, you know, monitoring, how does monitoring play a role with you and your athletes today? So I think monitoring is interesting, you know, at the elite level where you have these, smaller teams, you have more staff members, it's a lot easier to implement. And kind of one of the challenges we had is we had all these really neat pieces of technology at Notre Dame when I when I came. We have Catapult, we have a 3D motion capture system, Dari. We have um, a Kistler and a Force Dex Force Plate, a few of those. We've got different various VBT um, units, Elite Form. We've got some Tendos, we're working on getting some others. So we have all this technology, bod pod, uh, I, kind of the list goes on, and it was all really siloed. So when I came in, we sort of looked at, I looked at all the technology that we had, and I was trying to figure out what was the most impactful. And what we found out was that Catapult, for example, while it's a great technology, ended up being one of the biggest time sucks, um, really took a lot of energy, and it didn't make a lot of actionable choices right away. So as we looked at this and we looked at, and I think you'll appreciate this, you know, we look at nutrition, sleep, and stress management as foundational behaviors, especially for this very particular group of um, student athletes. Definitely. Um, we've been trying to kind of reallocate our resources to help handle the big rocks before we put more resources in the little ones. And with that monitoring process of deciding kind of what's going to be most effective, what's going to be most usable for you, you know, is that a, an instance of, of individually with each sport kind of going from the game backwards and figuring out where you can, you know, what information you're really going to need to move the needle in those particular sports or, or what sorts of things went into the uh, decision making? Yes, definitely. I, I think where I like to start with with some of this stuff is from affecting like practice plans and training plans and return to play is we look at what the potential decision options are of our coaches and our staff. Um, in some cases, for example, a coach might only really have the ability or have the, the will to change maybe a little bit less the same or do a little, a little more. Um, in that case, then we don't have to invest a lot of resources in the training load monitoring because the outcome isn't going to really affect what he chooses to do here. She chooses to do much. With other teams um, that, we've, that we work with here, they, the coaches will have a much more detailed plan and use the information more, in more of an elaborate way. So we try to kind of match the information we give the coach and therefore the resources we put into the program uh, to help the, that, that coaching staff. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how individual and, and tailored it needs to be. And can, can you give us an, maybe an example of how that might play out then in terms of certain sports would need um, you know, more tools versus other sports? That's a great example. I think it, so my, my two assigned sports, for example, are, are rowing, uh, women's rowing and men's soccer. Those are the two sports that I work with uh, you know, as a strength conditioning coach. Um, a really great example of that would be with men's soccer, we have enough GPS devices for the entire, almost the entirety of the squad. So we do everything from looking at high-speed running, distance over MAS that they cover. 
We also look at you know creating acute chronic workload relationships. We've also created a machine learning algorithm that will look at previous practices and look at what that athlete's done in similar practices and will actually project out a training stress balance into the future. So now we can have a conversation with the head coach and say, look, if we do practice like we planned and he plays this many minutes like we planned in 10 days, he's going to be in what we would consider a danger zone from the research. Um, same way we could also say that a certain individual might not have enough high speed running in two weeks if we don't adjust these parameters of training. So I was lucky working with Bobby Clark, uh, who just recently retired. He... He was really open to these suggestions, and we were able to really fine-tune a lot of the work that we did, and it was really equitable. Uh, um, it was really useful. That came out of my mouth weird, didn't it? It was, really, <laughs> it was really useful for that team. So we were able to kind of predict and project forward what we wanted to do and really make a lot of great changes. We had a really healthy team you know, due to, hopefully, I, I like to think myself, our athletic trainer, and the decisions that we made. Um, I won't, I won't name the team here, but there are other teams that that level of detail is never something we're going to do. The coaches, quote unquote, done it this way for, you know, 10 years and they're not about to change. So we try to feed them small amounts of information that hopefully will start the influence process and start to educate the coach on how maybe he could or she could use this information. Uh, a really good example, and this is Coach Muffet. They we just won the national championship uh, with women's basketball. Phenomenal! Yeah, congratulations. Oh, that was oh, amazing, fantastic. amazing stuff. So, Coach, you know, this is kind of like new. GPS was new for her, uh, and we kept it really simple. We did um, basically the last thirty days of training, and we calculated a one to ten score for each girl on that day, and we were able to give Coach some really simple heuristics that would kind of matched her understanding of the information being the first year she's really dug into it to say, Hey coach, like, could you kind of rate your practices one to 10? How hard are they? And she had a great model with what she thought should be hard and easy. And I think it would, it would really kind of match with what most of us thought we should do. And we were able then to match that at her level with another one to 10 that we got from the GPS. So because of that, she really bought into the process and we were able to make some small adjustments even with the, the, the amount of injuries we had this year, a lot of unlucky unlucky injuries, and keep the girls fresh for the most part throughout the season. And thank God we, we were able to really pull two clutch wins in the last two games and, and win the championship. So it was phenomenally exciting. But the level of detail was very different between the two coaching staffs. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, there's so many questions here for you. I mean, first off, in terms of buy-in, you've touched on it, but that's obviously got to be a huge, huge component of being able to um, affect change in terms of monitoring so the coach has got to buy in because ultimately they're the one who's controlling the practice and you know the next piece would be you know in a sport where you feel like you can make some some impact but the coaches are perhaps more resistant how do you go about yet yeah, kind of drip feeding or, or, or subtly influencing um, some of the areas where you could potentially highlight to the coach where you can make some changes I mean Mark I'm as you and I know we're, we're doing a, a conference this summer at Notre Dame and uh, this is actually the exact topic that I'm presenting on is how do we build relationships with coaches, recognize bias and start the influence process. Um, I think the first thing is really understanding who the coach is and understanding their personality type and understanding how to communicate with them effectively. I I've made this mistake 
way too often coming in of trying to rush that process before trust is made between both parties and it can really shoot you in the foot. So with coach, you know, we, we started very at a very simple level and we tried to understand what it is that she wanted. And she asked us one very specific question at the beginning of the year. And it was how hard can I push the girls, but not hurt them? Great question. (laughs) So starting from that, we outlined some examples and I was able to really get some buy-in from her because of my experience working in the NBA. And from that, we were able to kind of implement that, that what we call our S10 system. And that gave us kind of the standing ground to start having conversations. So we were also lucky to have a full-time sports science intern from Australian Catholic University, William Blake. He was here last semester. And Will and I kind of worked out the project. I helped build some buy-in and kind of facilitate the relationship. And between Will and our the head strength and conditioning coach, uh, Caitlin Sweeney for women's basketball, they kept simple and effective and consistent messaging to coach throughout the semester. And we really tried not to deviate too much because we knew the second she got in the middle of the semester, um, she was really going to start to go back towards her old habits. But because we did the work of building trust and having a simple deliverable message, it was able to kind of stick through all the ups and the downs of the season. And, and coach was fantastic about it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, to attending your talk at the conference because that's definitely such a huge part of, you know, of, of sport, of, of even as for myself on the nutrition front or even in medicine of just that being able to build those relationships and that buy-in is just such a huge, huge component. Obviously, strength coaches as well because you can design the best plan in the world, but if you can't get your athlete or your client to, to – actually follow through on it, that it does very little for you. Um, can we maybe talk a little bit about some of the contrast between your work and professional sport as well as compared to the college game, um, maybe starting with, uh, with soccer and, and, and the MLS? What are, what are some of the, the differences or maybe some of the lessons that you learned in those two different environments? Yeah, one of the first lessons uh, I learned right when I came in, they were finishing up a, a questionnaire study of our student-athletes. Um, and it asked them basically to rate how important different aspects of their life were, uh, and draw a pie chart and put a percentage to it. So this is social, this is academic, this is career, this is family, this is athletics. And again, this is an unofficial estimate, just looking at the initial data. What do you think the percentage of sports was for the majority of the kids? No idea. You had to give it a guess out of out of, out of 100. 50? That's what I, I was thinking 50 to 70 when I first saw this. Um, considerably lower, under 20%. Wow. So that really changed perspectives for me. Working with elite, elite, you know, professional level athletes or, you know, I worked for um, Athletes Performance, uh, formerly Athletes Performance, Exos, for uh, about three years. And... I think the athletes I've previously worked with would say 90. So how we build relationships with them, how I communicate with them, with professional athletes is very different. It's very goal-oriented. It's very oriented towards their sport. But now when I look at building a relationship and coaching and communicating with our student athletes, they really are, especially at Notre Dame, they're student athletes. So being able to, to craft my message, our coaching points, our, our influence 
it's really geared around these kids have a lot more concerns that they're worried about. They're worried about getting a job. They're worried about the social aspect of trying to balance being an athlete. And you look at the amount of time they have to spend, it's probably 50-50, right? So the, the time they have to spend in their sport versus what they truly value in their life is not it's not balanced, not, not, right? Not, not balanced. It's not to say that they don't give everything they have to their sport. I mean, when they're playing their sports, our kids are amazing. They're all in. But there's a lot more going on with student athletes, I think, in the background than just the sport itself. So I think it was a, it, that really allowed me to have some empathy for people that may have missed some sleep because they had to study. So the biggest challenge for me is was a couple of things. First, from a strength strength conditioning perspective, was realizing that these kids can handle a lot more than professional athletes. So as far as volume and intensity and just changing and programming, I could push a lot more and get more adaptation. It's amazing training being young, old. right? Yeah, <laughs> I wish I was that young again. Um, I try to do my men's soccer summer program. I started about a month ago, and about a month into it, I'm I'm a, I'm a wreck. I can't uh, <laughs> I just can't handle the volume, but. Um, so that was one of the biggest lessons I learned that they truly are student athletes. And especially at Notre Dame, the academic demands are through the roof. So having some empathy and trying to have some understanding with that, but still holding them to a high standard. Uh, the second is dealing with, I'm not dealing, but working with administration, where at the same time, administration is concerned about the whole athlete, not just how can we win the next game. So really trying to learn how to communicate effectively in an environment that I'm not familiar with and working around all of the hourly restrictions and uh, class schedules and gym schedules. And it's, it's, um, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great point there in terms of sometimes life gets in the way, whether it's student athletes, people working nine to five jobs, that idea if you got deadlines, you have things you have to meet. And sometimes you're not going to sleep eight, seven, eight hours. And you're going to have those nights and you know, what kind of strategies can you use, whether it's, uh, training, nutrition, etc. You know, how can you make the the best of the of the least desirable options, so to speak? So I think that's a, a really important one because it's sort of that real life scenario that obviously um, student athletes would face all the time, and you guys must face all the time. Now, with your work even in basketball, um, perhaps more on the analytics or technology integration side of things, you know, what what are some of the the contrasts there in terms of um, your time in the NBA versus what you see in the in the college game? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I actually don't spend, other than kind of helping coach kind of work through our reports and occasionally being at practice, I'm not sure I could really give you a, from, a, from an athletic perspective, I could really give you a, a true answer to that comparing them. I think culturally, a lot of the same issues I discussed before um, fit in both of those buckets. But as far as, and this is just generally with these student athletes, I'm, I'm very much used to a kind of a servant role in professional sports. I'm there to help that athlete improve. Um, where in the college role, I'm also, I'm also here to help them become better people to a higher level. So holding them to higher standards and being more of a kind of a classical kind of coach role. So I, I think the difference in how you communicate and how you hold people to different standards is going to change. I think, you know, where I was at, if a guy didn't want in the, in the pro, pro setting, if a guy didn't want to do a particular exercise, like, okay, great, that's fine. Let's find a way to get you what you want to do. Whereas in the college setting, if someone didn't want to do something, I could call them out for being lazy and the relationship's very different. Yeah. So interesting. And kind of circling back to your, uh, your talk there on communication, um, obviously in the NBA, the 
players or professional sport level. Um, they're looking to other players, coaches, et cetera, maybe for those sort of leadership roles. Whereas obviously in the collegiate sport, as you mentioned, you know, the leadership role there is massive for a, for a strength coach, for all types of practitioners. Um, so how do you really, you know, expanding on that idea of, of communication, are there some you know, specific strategies that you might use or situations that you get in to help yourself to not only motivate um, and inspire athletes, but also to start building some of that discipline, which we, seen, we know is really what's going to get them to where they want to go in the long run. Yeah, I have to give a, a big shout out to Brett Bartholomew on this one. I um, was actually living with him in Arizona when he started writing his book. And it's his, his work and just the conversations we've had have been a really big influence on me. So um, conscious coaching has was, was, been a great resource for me. And as I'm starting to kind of look into, as I started to research what I wanted to research, uh, for my presentation, a lot of those resources and getting into some of the, the actual research has been really helpful for me. But in general, I think first and foremost, it's understanding who my athletes are by having one-on-one -on -one conversations with them. Um, I'll take soccer, for example. I spend the most time with, actually, I'll take rowing. I absolutely struggled with the rowing team the first semester that I was with them to the point where I had seniors telling administration that I, um, that they wanted me fired and, and it was, it was horrible. And I think what happened was I came in right before their season started when I started my job and I held the girls to a very high movement standard, something where I don't think that they were held to that standard previously. And I, I would stop the session. I would coach them. I would just, I went all out. I went like full coach. And I didn't recognize that that group had a very different dynamic with their head coach, a very different dynamic because of their sport. And we've had seniors that had different relationships with their strength coaches for, you know, four years. And it was terrible. The girls wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't look at me. I'd give them, I'd tell them what to do. They'd roll their eyes. I mean, it was, I really struggled. And, uh, it got to the point where I even talking to our strength conditioning director, um, at the time I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can keep going with this. I think it's a bad, it's a bad fit. And the head coach and I got into it about a, a couple different things. I, I just fully did not recognize the situation that I was in. But as I went through the summer and I started to work with some of the rising seniors and we started to build a relationship, I, there was about three or four girls over the summer that stayed for summer school. And I was able to get in with them, start to build some confidence with them. And they started to relay, relay that information to our other athletes. And over the course of our fall semester, um, it was a slow, very iterative process of me trying to, I invited girls in for extra sessions to help them with things and just started to build a relationship with them individually and understand how they take criticism, how they take coaching points. And I started to understand who the girls are individually. I knew the girl that needed a, you know, she needed a very strong verbal yell across the weight room. That's going to get her motivated. And the next girl that just needed a pat on the back and for me to understand that, you know, she's going through some things. So over the course of the fall semester, the girls started to get stronger. They started to move better. They, you know, can all do pull-ups now. They've never been able to do that. Like just little things like that to the point now where if I get so excited to wake up at five 30, you know, three days a week to go That's train them a lot, because, yeah. because we've got such a great relationship. So to me, 
I kind of lost track of your original question, sorry. But to me, just getting to know my athletes and using some of these principles um, of recognizing who my athletes are. And for example, like we use the DISC profile here at the university. And I was able to kind of use some of the lessons I've learned from that towards my athletes. It was really exciting. It was really great. Um, sounds like a you know phenomenal sort of journey, so to speak. And it's amazing how, yeah, if we sort of ask, if we push the the limits beyond too far beyond the capacity of a person, a client, an athlete, then then oftentimes it can result in a lot of challenges. And as you mentioned, I mean, if we, it's so hard to get to know people to really understand how they are best motivated in terms of, you know, you have one person who gets motivated by, you know, tell them what to do. The other person needs more encouragement. So it's, it's, it's phenomenal to see that once you do get that buy-in, amazing how it just spreads like a virus amongst the whole team. And then everybody else is, is now motivated and committed to, to that, uh, to that plan. And obviously, as you mentioned, in terms of performance outputs, they're, they're achieving uh, all sorts of new personal bests and et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's really amazing stuff. And I guess, you know, as a coach, if we, if we sort of talk a little bit around just assessing athletes, that, that idea of the coach's eye, which these days seems to be a bit of a, perhaps a lost art in the tech driven world, you know, how would you help sort of young coaches develop that, that ability to see if maybe an athlete's more run down based on, you know, perhaps their technique or something else? Yeah, I think one of the things I, I really learned while I was in Exos, I was able to watch the Altus group train a lot. And, uh, Dan Pfaff talks all the time about the best movement screen is the warm-up. So I have my girls do a very similar warm-up. I use very similar cues every day, and that's kind of my, you know, my oil check. Do they what's their energy like in the morning? How do they move? Do we see that they're stiff? And you know, I communicate with the head coach too. I ask them, what have they done in training, volume, intensity, that kind of thing. And from there, that kind of helps me understand how fatigued they are. And then I can make some quick, quick adjustments to their cards to how they're going to kind of, you know, work through that session that day. And I always try to have a goal that I'll, after, after the warm up, I'll bring them in and we'll talk about what the goal is for the session. What are we trying to work on? How can that be related back to their sport? And then I'll make a couple key coaching points about some of the key movements. So if we're working through, ah, hand cleans or, um, you know, our squats, for example, a great example, especially with rowing, again, is most of the girls have the mobility to sit all the way down in a squat. And that's the position you need to be strong in on the boat to come out of the catch. But put weight on their back, they were very afraid to sit lower. So I made a very clean point that if they want to be stronger in the boat, they have to be stronger in these low positions. Um, we started to use some external cues for them sitting down to a just a soft med ball. They have to touch the med ball before they squat up. And it took, it took time and it took me individually coaching the girls. It also took me teaching. It's a big group. We've got almost 50 rowers in the weight room at once with just me. So it's also took me teaching the older girls and some of the coxswains, for example, what technique looked like. And they were able to help kind of facilitate what we were looking for. So I I think understanding what good movement is, good movement is probably the most important thing you can do as, as a young coach. Because if you don't know what good looks like, it's really hard to fix things. Absolutely. Well said. And, you know, in terms of experience, obviously that's built up over a number of years. And I don't know if, you know, for yourself or with your work, um, you know, in at Exos, et cetera, if there's a, you know, a number of years that a young coach has got to go through, is it more to do with their environment in terms of the, the other coaches and practitioners they're working with can maybe accelerate some of that, that learning? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I still do this. I, I just scour YouTube and I look for little coaching points and I'm always looking for what good technique looks like. And then I watch myself in the mirror, I video myself when I work out and I, I just look to see and I, and I go through the programs that my athletes do and I, and I try to find little cues. And then it's just understanding some of these key basics. There's a lot of foundational principles with coaching basic, you know, human movement that is applicable to anything. You know, a, a horizontal push, a press is the key fundamentals of it are very similar. If you're doing push-ups or bench press or dumbbell press or some other variation, and it's the same thing with any kind of like horizontal or vertical roll, row. We're looking for particular things, and if you understand those those principles of movement, it's really easy to coach. You know, something crazy like a, a split stance, like rotational horizontal row. Gotcha, and. You know, with your work as well, if we kind of jump back over on the on the monitoring side, so athletes are training hard, girls are doing well in terms of the, the rowing or the, the men in the soccer team. In terms of monitoring, is there things, you know, is it the daily wellness questionnaires? Is it, um, you know, session RPEs, is it heart rate variability? Are there certain tools that maybe are uh, more beneficial for you in one group versus yeah. another or other ones that are great across the board? Yeah, definitely. The It's a great question. I mean, I love, I love heart rate variability and sleep monitoring. I think it's fantastic. I've used a mega wave. I personally use a, a solution called MFIT QS. It's an under the mattress sensor. It's phenomenal. Um, it gets sleep and heart rate variability. I'm not getting paid to say that. I just really like it. Nice. But in our setting, uh, it's very difficult because we have students that barely responsible enough to remember to bring, uh, you know, an extra pair of shoes when they come to the weight room. Right. So if I'm asking someone to get up and do heart rate variability in the morning, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, and even to the same, same degree, when we talk about questionnaires, questionnaires are very powerful. And some of the teams like rowing, for example, they have a big culture on data. Their head coach really drives that and it's done. And the information is accurate. It's reliable. It's done every day. Uh, there's other teams that I've worked with that the head coach is a, a bit indifferent about the questionnaire data. Therefore, if we don't have support from the head coach, eventually the players aren't going to do it or they're not going to do it well. And we start to lose the accuracy of what we're looking at. So regarding my questionnaires, I find that to be really hit and miss and it's dependent on team culture. And we talk about the currency of an athlete. They only have so much, you know, quote unquote, like money to spend every day. So if we're asking them to foam roll and to do a questionnaire and to do X, Y, and Z, it's really individual to the teams. In a perfect world, I think the more the data, the better, but there is a level where it doesn't always influence what happens. So for men's soccer, for example, you know, we do questionnaires that helps me out a lot, but, um, you know, at times it, it can be really difficult. I think just paying attention to things like when do they have exams uh, and getting to know them individually. Are they struggling with a particular class? I think one of the things that's really nice about Notre Dame is we have once a week we have performance team meetings and we have the the coaches, the team administrator, our operations manager, one of their academic advisors. Um, strength coach, nutritionist, and sports medicine. And we all sit in a room and we go over key things. So us communicating and collaborating, I get more out of that about what's going on with different athletes than anything. 
because I could learn about a particular kid that might be having academic stress. And that helps me relate to him a little better in the weight room or on the field or during warmups. Um, so we've also done with men's soccer, we did, we did a um, submax heart rate test. Um, I just didn't really see a lot of trends out of it that were that useful. I've used it in other places that I liked. But we're looking forward to potentially having some sleep monitoring and some heart rate variability monitoring. Uh, hopefully, I'm trying to get some more of these MFIT sensors for our one of our teams to evaluate what's going on. Because like I said, I think sleep, stress management, and nutrition are our foundational behaviors that we need to check before we really start looking for that you know, small percentage, like marginal gains. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard that as well in terms of you know these daily wellness questionnaires being just kind of a starting point for if, if, if athletes do get flagged up, obviously really useful in, in bigger team sports where you can't go and have a conversation with every athlete, but they really are best used as just a way of, of, of flagging athletes and then to, to, to remind a, a coach or practitioner to go over and have that conversation and, and see what's going on, which you know obviously it sounds like when you guys are having your performance meetings, it's a great time to be able to get the different perspectives of the different practitioners and coaches so that you can see things from, from different angles and really be able to, you know, support athletes all the way. And like, like you mentioned with technology, I mean, so many things that we can measure, but you know, what's actually uh, actionable, what's going to actually move the needle, you know, think sometimes we can get so focused on the interesting micro stuff that we lose track of that 30,000 foot view macro, you know, are we, are we, are we winning? Are we getting better? Um, on that note, in terms of all your experience, uh, Jordan, you know, with MLS and NBA and the collegiate ranks, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in the last you know decade or so of your work? It's a good question. Biggest lessons I've learned. You know, I, I think each place that I've been, I've learned. I've had some really great mentors. I working at the Seattle Sounders and working with Dave Tenney while he was there was that was my first job out of college. So to say the, uh, the amount that I learned from him, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you, but Dave really showed me the value, the value and in integration of how we communicate. Cause Dave was a, he's an A licensed soccer coach and he's, you know, he's an A licensed fitness coach. Um, Dave wow. did a phenomenal job at communicating effectively to the coaching staff and understanding and being able to, live in that like quote unquote high performance manager position. So I really learned a ton from Dave about integration and about some of the technology. That's where I picked up at that point. I think when I started, I didn't know how to, I didn't know what an if statement was in Excel to now I'm writing, um, managing a database and writing, you know, applications in R and running machine learning algorithms. I mean, it's been a huge wow. <laughs> interest for me since I've learned that from Dave. Impressive. Um, uh, just, I'm like a golden retriever. I just keep, trying things until I figure it out. But um, then going to Oklahoma City, working under, you know, the staff there, uh, Dwight Dobb has been in the NBA for, uh, I might mess this up, Dwight, sorry if you're listening, I think it was 18 years with the same organization, with the Sonics and then Oklahoma City. Incredible. And his ability to connect with his athletes uh, was unreal. So learning how to really effectively communicate and empathize and, and learn to coach even athletes as high level as, you know, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and how to connect with them. I really learned a lot from him. It's, um, it's difficult, right, when you get really elite players, and especially at that level, um, to, to navigate that, that really fine line between sort of motivating, be able to communicate without uh, 
uh, stepping on an athlete's toes or kind of getting in the way, right? Very much so. And and Dwight was a very faithful man, something I respected. And he he really felt his calling was to be a positive influence for these types of people that don't always have a lot of people that hold them to that kind of standard. Fantastic guy, and I was lucky to have him to, to work under him. Uh, moving to the Browns, I learned a really valuable lesson that sport is cutthroat, and you have to be very careful. Um, very volatile situation while we were there, but it was a uh, uh, head coach was kind of on his way out. And there was a lot of power struggles, and I, I was only there for not even a whole season, and it was I, I learned a lot from that. You know, then I went over to Exos and working there, working in Dallas um, as a facility coach there, learned a lot about connecting with young athletes. I learned a lot about like learning movement and learning what really quality high level movement was. And while I was at, you know, Exos, like being able to in Arizona, being able to work under some of the really experienced coaches there, you know. I would, like I said, I was a rented room from Brett Bartholomew while I was there for about a year and learned a lot from him. That was really fantastic. Uh, and I think my most recent really big lesson was when I, I moved from Exos to the Chicago Fire was that I knew all the I thought I knew, you know, most of the right stuff. I had my systems on paper. I have a binder like I know what I'm doing and all these scenarios. I thought I was ready for my my big job. It was the job I've always wanted was to be a head fitness coach. I got it, and I was so unable to communicate effectively with our head coach because we came from such different perspectives that we, I ended up, I ended up kind of getting forced out the door. So I think that in itself really has been my, my big lesson is I need to improve my ability to communicate and relate to everyone. Yeah, so interesting to hear all those different experiences and. And definitely that that notion around just the head coach's idea or the head coach's notion of how to of how to play and how to train. And, you know, if that doesn't match up with with how he views the, the strength and conditioning staff, it's uh, no matter how great a plan, it's 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 an uphill battle, right? So, really, really phenomenal stuff. And listen, Jordan, on the I want to ask you a few questions here on the personal side of things before we uh, before we check off. So, you know, obviously a really busy guy. How do you how do you fit training into your tight schedule? Is it you know some shorter sessions in the week? Are you getting all the work done in a few longer sessions? Are you are you not even able to get in the gym anymore with, with how much you're doing? I kind of ebb and flow through things. Uh, some I, I always try to get at least like three thirty minute sessions in a week if it's just some just simple things to stay relatively fit. Um, and I always kind of experiment with my my programming so i'm always working on going through my athletes programs in some capacity to try to understand what they're going to go through and kind of feel that so i try my hardest to hit three sessions a week it seems to be kind of the best for me as far as strength training and i do some interval training um but i've actually started playing on a soccer team as well so i kind of it's nice to have something to train for again awesome dusting off the cleats that's great that's a lot of fun it's our two assistant coaches from men's soccer, our athletic trainer, our women's head soccer coach. So we've got a, we've got a heck of an old man team. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Show, show the young kids how it's done, right? Yeah, we lose a lot of games though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and uh, of course, as well, you know, I love to ask my, my uh, guests all about how they start their day. I was really curious as to if people are, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, or are you in the gym to start the morning? How does, how does that, how does that look for you in the morning when you get up especially those early mornings because you're getting up at what five five thirty to hit those rowing practices yeah sometimes um the struggle with my 
Well, so I'll tell you what I would like to do. What I, what I like to do when my schedule is pretty consistent is I like to get up, you know, take the dogs for a walk, that kind of thing. And I'll spend five minutes, you know, on headspace. Oh, I wanted, I wanted to mention before, just I'll come back to this. One of the biggest things we've implemented with men's soccer was influencing or adding headspace to some of their nightly routines to help with sleep and manage their stress. That was probably the most effective thing we've done as far as helping them recover, by the way. Phenomenal. But, uh, I like to get up and try to just be mindful or meditate a prayer a little bit in the morning. And then, um, I'll have breakfast and then I usually head to work. But now I have Tuesdays and Thursdays. I have to get up, you know, five 30 ish to be ready for, for lift in the morning with rowing and Tuesdays and Thursdays. I also don't get w- done to work until 10, 10 30 PM because of late night soccer practice. So <laughs> I don't know. My sleep schedule has been a mess and I've been really trying to kind of deal with it. It's one of those real life scenarios that we talked about before, right? You just sometimes it's the cards are dealt and then it's, yeah, all figuring out strategies to kind of buffer and offset the, uh, that late finish and early start. It's always a really, really tricky one. It is, but we're, I'm getting there. I'm getting better at going to bed earlier. And it's just been, for me, it's been having a more dialed in bedtime routine to help me get to sleep, especially like Monday and Wednesday night. So, uh, but I know how much you like coffee and as do I. So what do I do for coffee? I just bought an espresso machine, which I absolutely love. Nice, so when nice. I'm home, I, I usually do like a double espresso with a little bit of water in it and just have it like that. Sometimes I like to put stuff in it, but, uh, when I'm on the road, I also just bought a, an AeroPress, which has oh, a game changer, right? Oh my gosh. From drinking terrible hotel coffee. Yeah, there's nothing worse than being uh, on the road, maybe a bit tired, and then having to drink a really crappy cup of coffee in the morning to to, to get things off to a rough start. So that's uh, that's cool to see. Um, rough thing for me has been uh, I took uh, Athletogen. They have that genetic test, and uh, I'm very I don't I don't really metabolize caffeine very well. So keeping my my caffeine consumption low has been a pretty big challenge because I love coffee. So I've I've, I've been relatively good about only having one cup in the morning. Yeah, that, that uh, CYP1A2 gene is definitely the one when everyone's getting their nutrigenomics panels and, and trying to see. That's definitely the popular one to see where people stand. And everybody wants to be the uh, the fast metabolizer there. But uh, I'm, I'm the same, Jordan. Slow metabolizer. I know it's uh, one, one cup a day. That's, um, that's where I stand too. But uh, well, listen, man, thanks again so much for taking the time. You guys have the University of Notre Dame Human Performance Summit coming up, the 24-hour athlete at the end of June 2018. Uh, I'm looking forward to being there, to hearing you speak, to speaking myself, which is which is a real honor. Um, so where can people get more information about the conference? Where can people get uh, stay connected with you and your fantastic work? Uh, you know, I'm, I've been slowly trying to do more on social media, but you can follow me on Twitter at uh, JVWeb. I'm sorry, Jordan V. Webb. And then and our primarily for our conference, we've been tweeting and the uh, handle is uh, und underscore hps. Awesome. I, I'll add a link to the show notes, or you can add a link, I guess, to the show notes of, of the actual website for registration and, and who our speakers are. Absolutely. Definitely will do that. Phenomenal, phenomenal lineup of amazing speakers from all over the world. You guys have done a great job. Short flight or drive from Toronto as well for those who want to go down and check it out. Uh, end of June 2018. Uh, thanks again, Jordan, for taking the time. We'll definitely include all those links with the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else who's tuning in. If you guys have any questions for Jordan or want to leave a comment on today's show, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. 
course, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share with friends and colleagues. All right. Thanks again, everyone. See you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.